Welcome to this month's edition of Zonta on the Move. We're glad to have you be part of this discussion. Today, we're going to meet your local Zanchan, Bonnie Winfrey, and we'll be talking to Amira Abu Youssef, the local council coordinator for the 12th Judicial District Family Violence Coordinating Council. We'll also chat a bit about the upcoming 16 days of activism and how the Zanta Club of the Joliet area is helping to raise awareness of this important project. For now, let me introduce our co-hosts, Bonnie Winfrey and Lisa Pappas. In our last podcast, Bonnie asked us to talk about why we joined and continue to be part of Zanta. So, Bonnie, my questions to you are, what motivated you to join the Joliet Area Zanta Club, and what do you see as a long-range goal of the club? Oh, Pat, you have put me truly in the hot seat. (laughs) (laughs) You can handle it. You're good. (laughs) You know, um, three years ago, I would say three years ago, I joined Zanta, and um, it was a very positive move. First of all, I like the mission of the organization, and I love the fact of helping women and children to excel. And um, that's real big on my agenda. And as far as looking at where the club is going, um, I think there's no limits. You know, I think we will grow from a local organization, I mean the Joliet Mm -hmm. group, to an international, even though we have Zanta International, but we will be known internationally as well. And that's what this podcast is all about. Zanta Cares. And that is one mission that we're going to carry and and take across the airwaves and to all the people that we meet. We're going to be looking at different um, problems that um, plague our nation. And we're going to be solutionists to those problems. We're going to bring um, experts through the podcast to help us solve these problems. And we're also going to listen to different experts and see what we can really do. So uh, this is an exciting time for Zanta. And this podcast is going to take us very far. It certainly is. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be involved with this. We appreciate your guidance on the PR committee. And of course, we're tickled to have you in the club. And I just (laughs) feel that the outreach of this to talk to so many different people and to find local experts. Yes. We yes. have such a wealth of knowledge in Joliet and in Will County. Yes, we do. And it's this amazing. A, yeah, it's a great place to start. Right, right, right. And and not only locally, you know, um, we can tap into through the podcast international experts as well. Like I said, there's no limit whatsoever. So um, this, like I said, it's an exciting time for us right now. Yeah, and I hope everybody catches a little bit of Zanta fever. <laughs> so thank you so much. You're welcome. So let's chat with our guest, Amira. Thanks for being here with us. Well, thank you for having me. Let me give a little bit of background from what you sent. Um, You currently serve as the local council coordinator for the 12th Judicial District Family Violence Coordinating Council. You received your Bachelor of Science from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign in psychology with a minor in gender and women's studies in 2010. You have your Master of Arts in Marriage and Family Therapy from Adler University in 2012, and you've worked in the family violence arena for over 10 years in the Will Will County community. You're a certified domestic violence professional and currently sit on the board of directors for the Illinois Certified Domestic Violence Professionals, Inc. And you are a Joliet lifer. (laughs) I am a lifer. I really do believe in how important it is to like be invested in your community and and to give back to your community. It's just, you know, it's always been so important to me. My mom born and raised here in Joliet. So it's just carrying on that legacy. Awesome. Awesome. That's wonderful. When I first met you, you were working for Guardian Angel Community Services. What do you consider your greatest success in that agency? God, that's that's a large question because I I had a lot of different roles as a part of Guardian Angel. So I started as a volunteer in the Sexual Assault Services Center, and I was able to um, sit with survivors of sexual violence while they were um, going through the evidence collection kits at um, area emergency rooms. So that's a really hard time for them. And I know I was still green as an advocate. I was still just starting my master's program, and there was a time where I had to advocate for a client in a way that I I wasn't sure I was allowed to do yet. 
And um, it, it paid off well for the client because she was kind of getting bullied into a corner and uh, to, to kind of make sure everything was going for that client in the way that it needed to. So taking that and then moving to a children's counselor and then moving to program manager, I think it always helped me remember that anything and everything that I ever did was for clients, even as a manager to, you know, do outreach at the state level to bring in new funding. It was always just for the benefit of the clients, hiring advocates. It's finding who's going to meet the clients where they need to be, who's going to, you know, have the compassion. So it's not just finding warm bodies, but it's finding people that are going to be really good for the work. So mm-hmm. I don't really know if I have a, a greatest thing I've ever done, but always remembering the greatest purpose of it was to serve clients. Mm-hmm. And have you always had an interest um, there are people that are like born to be helpers and there are people that are born to do all kinds of different um, things in life. Um, have you always thought of yourself as a helper and an advocate? I've always thought of myself as um, pushy and bossy, actually. That's an advocate. That is an advocate, <laughs> right. So that's kind of how, I mean, I when I was really little, I wanted to be a lawyer because I like to argue. And but learning to channel that into helping people, I think, was a a better avenue for myself. But, you know, my my parents, again, my dad was from Egypt and he came to this country to get his doctorate. So he had, you know, lived many years in another country and he was always very happy to give back to this community and to thank this country for what it had done for him. So that was very instilled in my household. Um, My mom was just very involved in the community when she could. And um, we were fortunate. So we just wanted to to pay that forward. So mm-hmm. I think that's where it really starts is in the family is mm-hmm. where you have um, a history, a generational history of wanting to give back and wanting to be part of the community you live in, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what that avenue is. I mean, you know, my aunt was a nurse. My sister was a nurse. I turned into a teacher. So, I mean, it, mm-hmm. it all kind of goes around in this big circle if we're lucky enough. Yeah. So um, tell us about the Family Violence Coordinating Council and what you do there. Because when I first knew that you took that position, I was like, okay, that sounds cool. I don't know what the heck that is. Most people don't. (laughs) But it sounds so cool. Yeah, um, it is. I'm actually still learning as I'm going. So I've been in this position officially since July. But what it basically started as was a way to address family violence from a more systemic level. So I see working at Guardian Angel to be more of like on a micro level. So you're dealing one on one with victims of domestic violence or family violence and addressing the acute crisis and macro level would be like government policy and things like that. This is in the middle. So this is meso level intervention. And it's really trying to bring everybody to the table that has that works in family violence. So we're talking law enforcement. We're talking court personnel, obviously victim services, but mental health professionals, Um, faith-based community members, anyone who's interacting in the realm of domestic violence and family violence and bringing them in to say, how can we do this better for our community? How can we do it better to serve each other where victims aren't being passed back and forth and back and forth, having to tell their story and get re-victimized where we're all working together for the common good. So that's the main goal. Now, how they do it and how we are trying to do it is through obviously outreach. Outreach is always a big thing. People have to know that you exist. Um, It is through uh, professional education, so professional training. So I currently I'm working on bringing in a strangulation expert to teach law enforcement, medical personnel and the prosecutors how to investigate crimes related to strangulation. I'm working on a training regarding firearm restraining orders so that our county can utilize them appropriately and effectively. And I am working on a training regarding adult protective services. So for a vulnerable old elder adults and vulnerable adults between the ages of 18 and 59 with a disability. So knowing how all those facets work together and addressing family violence that way. So that's what it looks like for professional education. And then it is policy change. So how how does the courthouse treat victims of domestic violence? How do they treat perpetrators of violence? How does law enforcement, you know, go out on a domestic call? What are best practices? Things like that. So updating policies, making sure that they are, you know, sound, evidence-based, things like that. And then, of course, that goes back into the training and then that feeds back into outreach. And then the outreach tells you what else do we need to do next? So it's all circular. So that is Mm -hmm. what the Family Violence Coordinating Council looks like. Um, it is there. We have 11 councils in the state of Illinois, 
There used to be 23, but after that budget impasse a few years ago, we did lose several councils and um, we're trying to get those back, hopefully with new funding. But uh, the state also has its own family violence coordinating council at the state level. So what they do mirrors what we do at the local level. So that's kind of what it looks like. Okay, so, you know, so many of us are... Um, when you're talking about like the strangulation thing, I mean, I like I watch a lot of British mysteries and stuff, and you can you know, do the detec- you? <laughs> yes, and the detective is like, oh my god, they've been strangled, and I I think it, that's kind of it to me. I think that that education, even taking it apart bit by bit like that, by having them recognize certain triggers and then recognizing the need when law enforcement is needed and when law enforcement is maybe not needed, mm-hmm. where social services can get involved. People don't think of that; they just mm-hmm. think it's a one two three, yes. someone gets hit or someone gets injured in some sort uh, sort of way. And most victims have no desire to involve law enforcement, to involve judges and, you know, criminal charges. That is not their intent. Most of the time, if a victim is reaching out to law enforcement, it is not for punishment. They're not seeking criminal mm-hmm. charges. They just want the violence to stop. Yeah. And they're at their last leg. They're, they've tried everything else. Or oftentimes they're not even the one calling. It could be the neighbor. It could be a friend. And now now they're stuck dealing with law enforcement in their heads. And uh, we had a great trainer out a few years ago talking about when we as professionals or law enforcement go out to these situations, you know, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and we can think up in the top few tiers because we're not involved. It's not our acute crisis where survivors and victims are at the very bottom level of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So we're talking food, shelter, clothing, the very basics. And when law enforcement show up or um, basically it's law enforcement because that's usually the crisis mm-hmm. crisis. They are seeing that basic needs being ripped away. Right. And so that is what's being attacked and compromised. So they will do whatever they can to try to avoid losing mm-hmm. their basic needs. So on the outside, it's kind of like, well, yeah, being abused is terrible. Why would you want to do that? And we can think of the higher level things where victims are just in survival mode. So when you really are teaching law enforcement to think about the person who's yelling and screaming at you to not be there, or they seem hysterical, which I hate that word, but I'm going to use that word because yeah. that's what people use, hysterical. They, If you think about that, they're just trying to survive and meeting them there. It really helps reorient everyone to the scenario and think about how to best help that person survive. Right. And I remember from um, my days living in Virginia, working for a divorce lawyer, you would go 10 rounds with these people and you would think, and I'm guilty of it. We all are. Why didn't they just leave? And now knowing what I know, it's like that was a really stupid question on my Mm -hmm. part because you are at the basics. These people often have kids to take care of and they have they're they're losing it. They see this as a loss of everything. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, everyone asks, why doesn't she just leave? As if putting the onus of the violence is on the victim when really mm-hmm. we have to hold perpetrators accountable. They are the only ones that can stop the violence. And it's really trying to do that schematic shift of it's not on them to leave. It is on the perpetrator to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Zonta International has done a lot of work in that. Like we had the um, a while ago, we had a safe cities program. We went out to Guatemala and other um, cultures where it was common to have like honor killings and stuff like that and acid throwing. And we would say, no. Right. And it took people didn't understand that this was a long term problem. You couldn't just show up as an officer or as a you know volunteer for this mission and say, no, you can't do that. Right, right, right. It, you it's have, systemic. You have to, it's systemic. It is generational. It is normal. And it's their for normal. This their normal. Right. It's it's. And to have to have someone completely do almost a 180 on something that's very ingrained in them is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we often saw in the law firm in Virginia, we often saw the partners going back together Mm because a lot of them were military. They were out of their state Mm -hmm. and they had no support. So, yes. Well, and they say, you know, victims return to the situation. I know you can't all see my air quotes, but I'm putting in air quotes. (laughs) They're awesome air quotes. Awesome air quotes (laughs) of victims return to the situation situation about seven or eight times. And, you know, for people on the outside, that seems so frustrating. But when you think about maybe a woman who has been prevented from entering the workforce for her entire abusive relationship, uh, which I mean, I could talk forever about that. But when they first leave and they don't have any job history, or at least let's say no job history for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And they have children and, you know, let's say they go to a shelter and the shelter isn't charging for services, but you can't stay there forever. And to reenter the workforce, you have entry level positions that are paying $15 an hour. Let's say that's better than what I was saying a few years ago, but 
to really think about your costs of living, $15 still isn't covering it and, you know, childcare and all the things that they have to pay for, you know, maybe their credit's ruined, all those things, you know, it can really impact whether or not someone can feel as though they can live independently successfully. Yeah. And I think that that's part of what um, we see. It must be, well, it's a two-part question. It's part of what we see when we in Zanta talk about these relationships that are fraught. And it must be equally as frustrating for law enforcement professionals who keep going back and back to the same call every time. Because they care. Yes. It's not just because they're getting their job done and they're frustrated doing their job over and over. They they do care when they Mm -hmm. show up. And I think people do forget that. And well, I think there's also the whole, as you referred to, the whole aspect of the police coming. Mm -hmm. So now if you've been trying to keep this under wraps, all of a sudden your neighbor might have blown the lid off it. For all you know, your adult child did because they're tired of seeing mom being abused. Or your younger child. I've I've had nine year old clients call police. Yes. And now the lid is blown off and you're actually frightened of what these law enforcement folks might do. Right. It is. Yeah. So it's really... I I think that it it just is so frustrating on so many levels. And I think that we hear this whole thing about, um, you know, defunding the police, which is the world's worst tagline, where it's actually bringing in those other professionals, Mm -hmm. bringing in a social worker when it's needed, a person who can talk to the children and not traumatize them further after they've been in that situation. It's diversifying the crisis response, the people who are involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think I hope that we can get to that point soon, because the other thing I noticed, too, is the generational nature of the violence. How how do we break that cycle? I know. Big question. (laughs) Big question. Let's just solve it today. Yes, we're solvers. (laughs) (laughs) I think, obviously, when it really comes down to is A is education, Mm -hmm. education that starts young. So it's talking about it in schools when kids are young and not saying we're talking about domestic violence, you know, big capital letters. You're talking about boundaries. You're talking about consent. You're talking about how to have healthy friendships. And, you know, maybe dissecting as they get older media and what, you know, songs are saying or, you know, what looks romantic on films maybe are red flags of abuse. So people can start to identify it younger and earlier. But it's also holding perpetrators accountable as a community Mm -hmm. and saying in our community, you know, we're not blaming victims. We're not, you know, saying they're the ones who have to end it. And, you know, Zanta is a wonderful club of women, but it's also getting men involved to Mm -hmm. hold other men accountable. And yes, women can be perpetrators of violence. Men can be victims. I definitely am putting that out there. But when we're talking about societal and we're talking about the big picture, men are often the perpetrators of violence against women and getting men involved in the movement. It is getting men to hold other men, just men to say, that's not a funny joke, or I don't think the way that you're treating so-and-so, you know, is loving. And abusers don't know that they're abusers. I guess I should really put that out there. Mm-hmm. Well, because it's, it's their... It's in their cells. Yes, it is. They think that this is, again, normal, that this is how love is shown. This is how relationships happen. This is what looks what mm-hmm. homes look like. And so to break that apart um, is really important. And again, that's education, holding them mm-hmm. accountable and men holding men accountable. Yeah. And it is, I mean, and to your point about women being sometimes perpetrators, I have seen instances where the woman is definitely the perpetrator, but then stands there and says, well, he's six foot tall. How could I ever do blah, blah, blah? Well, you did. Mm -hmm. And so it is calling out any perpetrator at this point. And it's it's recognizing that domestic violence, we're not necessarily talking about physical acts of violence. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's what that's the hallmark for a lot of people. It is power and control Mm -hmm. and is seeing who has the power and control over someone in a relationship that should be more egalitarian. Um, It is seeing who is who has fear and who doesn't have fear in the relationship. And that can tell you a lot about who is the perpetrator and who Mm -hmm. is the receiving victim. How do we educate? We talked a little bit in school how we could do this in school if we could get a mandate that was actually funded for it. (laughs) I don't know what you could be talking about. (laughs) Just pull that one out of thin air. But how do we educate our children, especially if we if we have had experiences in our own lives of maybe not physical violence, but verbal abuse and things like that? How do you suggest talking to the children and making them aware of what's appropriate and what isn't? Children are little sponges. 
And I think what is most important for children is to see healthy communication and relationships. And, you know, maybe it doesn't happen in their home, but it can happen with friends, with grandparents, with your friends, parents, with teachers and modeling <laughs> respectful communication and modeling appropriate boundaries. That's where kids learn the most. I mean, you can be very overt and have a healthy relationships seminar or, you know, health class or whatever, but yeah. it's really it's the modeling. <laughs> And, you know, now that I'm an adult and I look back at um, children's movies from when I was a kid, I'm like, oh, my God, these are <laughs> horrid messages. Beauty and the Beast. It's a beautiful movie. You love the music. It is Stockholm Syndrome. And you're like, yeah. oh, my God. And you're teaching often little girls, man, if you just love that beast good enough, he'll turn into a prince. And that's a terrible message because, again, it puts the onus on the victim mm -hmm. to be perfect. And if you just do X, Y and Z, you'll get your prince. And yeah, well, I mean, it's the same thing with the you know discussion about. Uh, the whole princess thing anyway, you know, oh, look at Ariel and then look at uh, the princess from Moana. And, you know, it's like Ariel left to go be with a guy. Mm -hmm. Lost her voice. Yes. Lost her voice. Lost her Imagine voice. losing your voice in a relationship. Yeah. And Moana went out to save her culture. Yeah. Uh, movies are definitely carrying themselves around. <laughs> I will give them that. But well, I mean, look at the Philadelphia story. I'm like a real old movie geek. The Philadelphia story that was like totally... One version had a Cary Grant smashing Katherine Hepburn's face into the ground. And you're like, yeah, that was supposed to be comedy. Yes. And it, yeah. if you want to talk about old movies, have you seen Gaslight? You know, I had to explain to someone, my younger of the youngest kids, I had to explain because they said they didn't understand gaslighting. I'm like, let me tell you, sit down. We're going to talk about that. Yes. They didn't realize that that, A, was a thing that was not invented just yesterday. Mm -hmm. And B, didn't realize that the whole premise is sit down, watch this movie, and then let's talk. Yes. I mean, it's a fantastic, it's actually a great movie. So yeah. if you like old movies, it is chef's kiss. But to to see what Gaslight is all about is, you know, making someone question their reality mm -hmm. and um, minimizing events that had happened or completely dismissing someone's experience. It can be very psychologically damaging. So. So, I mean, it's a great movie. So it is. But you have to talk about that on a level of abuse as well, then, because mm -hmm. if we're talking about um, every time I think people hear the phrase domestic violence, they think of a person who has been physically violated. Mm -hmm. But even something as simple as Bonnie, are you sure you did that? Mm -hmm. You know, well, that's are, you not know, how that happened. Yeah. You're misremembering that is, yeah. you know, I never said that, mm -hmm. you know, so a lot of that is so subtle and the person that's doing it is really good at what they're doing. And so I don't know in a, in a gaslighting situation how you actually call someone out who is like on another level of manipulation, manipulation. Yes, that I was going to use a different word, but I'll go with manipulation. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. It wouldn't have gotten us bleeped. I'm just saying I would have used a different yeah. word. Yeah, it, it you know, it takes it's hard. Mm -hmm. It is very hard. And the perpetrator is so good at making that person feel crazy and that no one's going to believe them. And that's why as advocates, when people do come to us, it is really important. And we do feel it in every bone of our body. But to say, I believe you, mm -hmm. because A, that helps that person realize that like, hey, I'm not crazy, but that this is a safe person. They under they can come to understand my situation so I can maybe get support. Again, not on them to end the abuse, but it is really important for survivors to seek out support from domestic violence counselors or programs because it's a trauma. It is, yeah. And and to be able to address the traumas is to be able to, it helps because trauma tends to go back into the reptilian part of our brains. And it's a very, you know, it's not where we have words. So our language center of our brains is up at the front. Trauma goes into where we don't have language. So to be able to sit with a counselor and put your trauma into words helps remove it from that reptilian part, helps with that PTSD. That's where that sits, where you're maybe hypervigilant or you're having flashbacks is to move it to a different part of our brain and start processing it differently. That's why it's really important for people who have experienced trauma to seek out help and mm -hmm. to initiate that help is, I believe you. <laughs> this is not your fault. You did not cause this. This is not a punishment for karma or whatever you think you may have done. This is not your fault. And I believe you. It's mm -hmm. so important. Mm -hmm. Listening without a solution, without having to give them a solution as yeah. well. Because mm -hmm. if someone is bearing their soul at that point and trusting you with this information, they're not necessarily asking you to fix it. They want to gauge your reaction. They want to see if you will believe them. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and they want to test their own. They want to validate their own stuff coming out of their mouth. Mm -hmm. Well, and the person I've always thought this, that as a as a therapist or as an advocate, the person sitting in the room with me is actually incredibly smart because they have used every fiber of their being to survive up until this point. Even if they're still in the relationship, they are surviving every day. And that takes incredible strength, courage, intelligence, all that there. And but remember that that survivors in there thinking that they're the dumbest person in the world and who would ever love them. And allowing them to see their own brilliance is a big part of, again, not giving them solutions, but allowing them to see how wonderful they really are. Mm -hmm. To give them back, almost like giving them back their soul and their own humanity, humanity, their own self-worth. Yes. Um, letting them see it. I'm not giving yeah. it back to them, but letting them see Well, yes. It. Reflecting it back and mm -hmm. acknowledging that it's there, even though they may not think that mm -hmm. it's there. So um, what do you think, have you run into in your work um, any kind of support um, or any programs? I'm kind of making a hash of this, but mm -hmm. uh, with the um, LGBTQ community, there's a vibrant LGBTQTIA community mm -hmm. um, in this area. And we often hear in like the P flag meetings that I go to of issues with um, identity and things like that and the parents not accepting identity and stuff like that. But and there have been um, probably instances of abuse in this county. Yes, 100 um, percent. Things are coming along. And I'm you know, I spent almost 10 years at Guardian Angel and seeing the push and change in policy at Guardian Angel, but also at the state level of what they were encouraging programs to consider. Now, the, the Illinois Coalition Against Domestic Violence it wasn't going to tell anyone what to do, but they were going to say, well, these are your best practices and this is really what you should strive for. And a lot of people would always say, oh, the shelter is a women and children's shelter. It's a women and children's shelter. And I kept trying to change it to, no, our shelter is for victims of domestic violence because we were accepting, we came around to, I guess we weren't, but we came around to accepting, you know, people regardless of their gender expression. So for a while it was like, oh, well, if they, ex you know, ex presented themselves as female, they could come and then it became like we were accepting men into shelter. And I think that was really important. Now, we don't ex we did not accept a lot of men because they tend to have access to different resources. But to acknowledge that domestic violence affects all was really important. The way that intakes were conducted changed. So we were asking male, female, and then we've changed it got changed to, you know, male, female, um, transgender, genderqueer, nonconforming, you know, broadening that, broadening um, sexual orientation. And I think in the way that we were doing intakes, just to kind of put it out there as normal to be asking these questions, I think showed how inclusive we were becoming. And it'll it allowed staff to wrap their heads around like, no, we really legit serve everybody mm -hmm. as long as they are a self-identified victim of domestic violence. So there is a push at the state level. I wouldn't say that every program in the state of Illinois has come around to it quite yet. They might not have the resources, but they're coming there. Um, obviously, if you the closer you are to the city, the more there are programs that are um, more centered around LGBT mm -hmm. issues. And, you know, there are more places to refer people and there's more outreach that happens. Yeah, I just was kind of curious about that in light of all the laws that have been triggered recently that we hear across the nation mm -hmm. with um, recognizing the diversity that's out there. Mm -hmm. And how do we address that at our level yeah. well, to make sure that our communities are safe and that the services are there should people need them. Yes. And acknowledging that although a lot of policies are, are attempting to be put in place because they're afraid that LGBTQI people are going to be perpetrators of violence, they're far more often the victims of violence and the recipients of violence um, within their homes and within the community. Mm -hmm. So just being able to acknowledge that. But change can be slow. Change can be slow. But, you know, I am proud to say that as when I was at Guardian Angel, we accepted everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, I have, I have several friends in the LGBTQ community and I can categorically say they were the bullied, not the bullies. Mm -hmm. And it was heartbreaking because from the adults to the kids, it was a massive failure to support these people. Mm -hmm. And it breaks your heart. Yes. And mm -hmm. and those young people are the ones who end up homeless and far more, more vulnerable to experience compound traumas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what as a club can we do to help Again, we're solving all the problems tonight. <laughs> um, That's why I asked you, because yes. I knew we could do it. Yeah. I think, you know, a couple of years ago, it was, it was probably one of my favorite things that actually ever happened at Guardian Angel was we did this um, 
it was like not a it was kind of like a weekly seminar for maybe like five or six weeks where Azanshin would come in as an expert and and present to our clients in shelter something that they were an expert in. So, you know, how to maybe enroll in school or how to budget. And what was so great about that was the the clients would come upstairs and tell me how impactful that was to see that things that they thought were complicated were actually maybe more simple or more within reach. And maybe they didn't take advantage of the actual information, but it made them feel powerful in that moment. I think it was one of the best things that I've seen Zonta do, to be honest. So if you all want to bring that back, but to put to realize that Zonta, you are all professional women, you have expertise and Mm -hmm. passing along that knowledge to other women can be life-changing. Even in that moment, they felt powerful. They felt capable. They felt like things were achievable within their grasp. So I thought that that was a great thing. But if you want bigger picture, figure out how to get men involved in the movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I think that can really change the conversation. It's a club Mm -hmm. of women, but you guys can empower anybody. You can empower men to get involved, too. Yeah. We have had one man be a Zanchin. Oh, really? Our club does accept men. Oh, see. So we we may be hitting up a number of people. Yeah. (laughs) But it is true. I remember doing I remember having that program installed where we did that and we talked to the women in our own areas of expertise and we all enjoyed doing it. So I think that's certainly something we can talk about and work on because we're always looking for service projects. It was one of my favorites in my seven years as program manager. Absolutely one of my mm-hmm. favorites. And it wasn't, you know, I'm, you know, a makeup person coming to show someone how to do makeup and feel pretty. It was giving them actual tangible information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't, you know, here's your dress for your job interview. It was mm-hmm. more concrete. Yeah. So what about folks that make it to the other side of the domestic violence experience? Mm-hmm. What does that look like for them and for you? How mm-hmm. do you go forward with that? You know, people do different things. You know, no one's a cookie cutter survivor. No one's a cookie cutter uh, thriver. Some people are just ready to move on in their lives and not really look back. Other people really take their experience and want to turn around and help others. Or they see maybe where there were holes or where there were gaps and and they want to try to fill those gaps. So I know of one person who went through our program who came back and, and knew that we didn't have funding to do outreach at schools. So she went and told her story at schools as a volunteer and reached thousands of students. We've had other survivors who had difficulty in the legal system, and they just wish that they had a personal advocate to help them through the divorce process or through, you know, parenting decisions where guardian angel could help with orders of protection and the state's attorney helps you with your criminal case. But if you're meeting with your divorce attorney, sometimes you guys aren't speaking the same language. And so we have a survivor who's stepped into that role and, and is tr- is trying to f- to navigate that system to to be a liaison and a support in that arena. Um, there's been a survivor she didn't go through our program, but she started her own legal pro bono legal services for. Um, she's not a lawyer. She has hired or she has lawyers who come on and provide that support. And so you know they take their experience, they see where the gaps are, and they use their energies to fill that gap. Which is again, I'm telling you, survivors are some of the smartest people on this earth, and they really do show up and show out after they uh, are separated from their abusers. However, oftentimes our survivors are still connected to their abusers, if, especially if they have children. It, yeah. does, it doesn't end. No. But they they learn how to, to cope and they learn how to live safely mm-hmm. and navigate that with their abusers still potentially around and connected, unfortunately. Yeah, that seems almost mm-hmm. counterintuitive mm-hmm. to me. But I, I guess I can't think of and I'm not a lawyer either. So I can't think of a valid reason other than just keeping an order of protection in place. And those aren't those aren't forever. Two years. Yeah. If if it's granted mm-hmm. that that's. You want this podcast to go on for six more hours. Let's talk about um, orders of protection. Um, yes. I mean, and we know what, and I don't want people listening to think that if they're in a domestic violence relationship that I'm saying that they have to leave mm-hmm. because there were many, many clients who came to services because they wanted to learn how to live safely in their home because they weren't going to leave because of religious reasons or for the children or you know whatever it was. Every reason was valid, mm-hmm. but they wanted to learn how to cope. Right. And that's absolutely okay too. Mm-hmm. And that person is just as smart as the person who is left. It is whatever you need to do to survive. Yeah, it is a case. It is definitely 
person by person, Mm -hmm. because there might have been situations where you think, how could you do that? But through your own grit and determination, you make it work and you make it safe. Mm -hmm. You know, where someone else, their choice is, this is the way I'm going to make it safe. I'm booking Mm -hmm. out. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that either way. And for some people, they know that they're safer staying because if they leave, that's when the lethality risk goes way up. Yeah. And so they know, hey, my living here might be miserable, but at least I'm alive. And that is absolutely a valid reason to stay, Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. So, um Give me 10 minutes on orders of protection. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, I remember in the old courthouse where we had a problem at one point where the people filling out the orders of protection had their abusers like standing behind them waiting to go in to see the judge. Yeah. Which well, is insane. Orders of protection are good things. I don't want mm-hmm. you all to think that they're not good things. So. Right. For those who don't know, uh, a lot of people call them restraining orders, but in Illinois, we call them orders of protection. And it is it is a daunting process when you think about it, because like I've had my fair share of traffic violations in my time and going in front of a judge was scary just for that. And I was completely at fault. Um, That taillight definitely was out. So whatever. Um, And it but that's a hard experience. If if that is not your arena, it is very um, God, what's the word I want to use? It's intimidating. Intimidating. Yes, that is the word. It is very intimidating. So then to have to go out and fill out paperwork saying I'm a victim of domestic violence, please believe me and protect me when you may have never even said it out loud before or told anybody is incredibly daunting. And then again, when you go to file your petition, you're you're filing and going in front of a judge. So a judge has to hear it, um, sharing your story, hoping that they believe you. And ideally, it's granted without evidence at that point. So you're really just filing this petition, hoping the judge grants it. They only grant it for a short time. So it's 14 to 21 days. Mm-hmm. Then you have to go back and your abuser has the right to show because they have the right to hear what they're being accused of. Right. And that is enough to make people not want to do it. A lot of other people say orders of protections are is just a piece of paper. And yes, it is just a piece of paper. For some abusers, yeah, they don't want legal problems or X, Y, Z. So maybe they will comply with it. Some abusers, that's not what's going to stop them. Uh, yeah, I was going to say some abusers would just as soon step on that piece of paper and... It doesn't matter. Yeah. Some abusers evade getting served. So the, it, the order of protection isn't valid until it's served by a law enforcement mm-hmm. officer. So our victims are going back to the courthouse week after week after week, and it's still not getting served, but they're showing up to their hearing. Mm -hmm. So they're taking off of work. They need to find childcare, losing money, all the things. And abusers basically use the the court process to further abuse and disadvantage their victim. Mm -hmm. But it's the only system we have right now. It is the only system we have right now. And that was going to bring me to my next point of, of, again, it is turned into it's often up to the victim to try to figure out how to end domestic violence. Um, in their home. And that's what also kind of drove me nuts about the whole shelter system. Yes, the going to an emergency shelter to be safe in a crisis, great band-aid for the solution. But how bonkers of an idea of you are a victim of a crime. So now gather all your belongings and your children and leave your home Mm -hmm. as the victim of the crime. Go stay in an unfamiliar place with people you don't know. In a pandemic. In a a pandemic was that was because why not? Yes. It was a whole other thing. You know, you don't have your food. You don't have your sheets. You don't have your things while your abuser gets to basically kind of carry on. Mm-hmm. And it's often women, too. Will they, you know, they traumatize. They're traumatized anyway. They have to leave even their pets. Yeah. Yes. Have to leave their pets or their abuser threatens their pets or often kills their pets because it's just property. And you can unfortunately kill pets over and over again. And right. luckily, our Will County State's attorney actually takes that crime incredibly seriously. Mm-hmm. Um animal abuse. So we are very fortunate that our prosecutors will take that seriously, Mm -hmm. but sometimes hard to prove. Well, yeah, that's the thing. You have to, like you said, you are the victim and you are the one being displaced. You're being displaced. You have the burden of everything. Yes. Everything is is the victim's burden. I mean, can you imagine if you know, you were robbed and, oh, you were robbed. So now we need to take you, uproot your entire life, put you somewhere else. You know, you have to re-navigate your life. You need to get your kids enrolled either in the local school or go through McKinney-Vinto to make sure that, like, they can get bus to their home school and figure everything out. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't have transportation, so you can't get back and forth to your job. We don't have a lot of shelters in Illinois. So 
if you live in Will County, there's one. Yeah. If, you know, that one's full, which, you know, 30 beds is what we have in Will County. That fills up real quick. So then the next closest one is maybe Aurora, maybe Tinley Park. Maybe you're going down to Kankakee if you don't have transportation <sighs> to get to your job or by your family. Some people, they want to get as far away from their community as possible. So, you know, that is maybe a plus. But if you really think about that burden, because you're a victim of a crime, seems like the craziest system that has come up with to put a Band-Aid on a, on a problem. Yeah. Well, I think that overall, though, we are making strides. Yes. And I think that with people like you who care, people at the law enforcement level who are recognizing the importance of their place in that continuum to fix it, people who are having conversations openly about how to break the cycle. I think we're at least moving sort of the forward. Con the conversation has changed so much, even in my short time. Um, when I first started was right around the Chris Brown and Rihanna <laughs> scandal. And the conversations that were happening around that versus you know, what's been happening in the NFL. And, you know, people seem to be wanting to put more um, onus on the perpetrator. But then I hate to bring it up, but the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial in the United States one, because let's not forget that there were two. And the one in the United Kingdom had a different outcome than what happened here in the United States. But what watching that discord happen on social media was disheartening to me as an advocate. And I, I can't imagine as a as a victim to to maybe watch friends and family support someone who clearly is utilizing abusive tactics, you know, mm -hmm. and or seeing maybe Amber Heard as not your perfect victim. You know, people but, want yeah. to see the simplified victim of like, this is all that they are. But People are complex. They're not mm -hmm. perfect. And if someone's like, well, I've done a couple of those things. And does my abuse not count anymore? Am I not victim enough to have the sympathy? Yeah. And that seems weird to have that kind of a measuring stick as to how much of a, vic of a victim are you? Mm -hmm. And sometimes we also take that whole thing about celebrity and putting them on a pedestal. And we don't look at what's happening next door to us. Yeah. We don't look at what's happening to in our families even. There are a lot of family situations where it's just like, Oh, well, that's Uncle Fred. He's always treated Aunt Jean like that. Well, that's still abuse. Knock it off. Yeah. You know, so I. But it's it's I see a lot of promise in our younger generations. Mm -hmm. I think I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm I, I would like to say I'm young. I'm youngish. I <laughs> became aware of like the news cycle when O.J. Simpson's trial was going on. Like, mm -hmm. I remember that being a crystallizing moment in my youth of like, oh, this is the news and this is what they talk about. And O.J. Simpson, that really changed the conversation around domestic violence. It became more of a water cooler topic where mm -hmm. it used to be like no one talked about it. Maybe you saw the burning bed and you ch yeah. chatted about that. But he really brought that situation to the dinner table where people were discussing it. And I think it's really changed from there. And then you also see pol policies change, like the Violence Against Women's Act came mm -hmm. out in 1994, same around, around the same time that I do think we're moving in better directions. And I do think, you know, VAWA has been reauthorized over and over again, and it improves most times when it goes through the reauthorization process. That to me is promising. Yes. Where in some countries they work backwards or sometimes in some administrations they work backwards. But I do think overall the children and youth that are seeing what's happening now, they're going to be able to take this and move the conversation even further. So like kind of like my generation kind of used O.J. Simpson and what we saw. Mm -hmm. I think our youth are going to see what's happening. And, and in, you know, 10 years, I think we're going to be very pleased to see where that needle is moving. And it's just going to keep going. I wish it would go faster. But what are you going to do? Well, I mean, you know, it's going. It's going. So, well, thank you so much for being our, our guest at this podcast. This discussion was certainly wide ranging and <laughs> we attempted to solve several things. But no, it, it really is good to hear because we don't know. We only read or hear what's on the news. And it's nice to know that things feel like the needle is moving. The needle is moving. Everybody matters. So, you know, if we do have victims listening, just know that you matter and there are people who want to help you. And if you're someone who wants to be a helper, you can make a big difference, even if it's giving a presentation mm -hmm. on what you're an expert in to a survivor so they can see what opportunities are out there for them. It makes a big difference. Well, thank you again for coming. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So that was an awesome discussion. We could have gone on way longer. We definitely could have. 
So I want to switch gears a little bit, not too much. We're still on the same topic. The 16 Days of Activism um, is a program that is near and dear to our Zonta hearts. In November, our club gets involved with this project. The project runs from November 25th, which is International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, through December 10th, which is World Human Rights Day. During the 16 Days of Activism, people around the world will unite to raise awareness about gender-based violence, challenge discriminatory attitudes, and call for improved laws and services to end violence against women for good. Speaking out here um, is something we do in Zanta um, locally and internationally. We've had the Safe Cities Project, as we mentioned before, and others that educate men in many countries that violence against women is not the answer. Um, in our club, we have several things going on. We're going to be writing letters to officials, urging programs and legislation to raise awareness of the pervasiveness of violence against women. We're going to be posting our Zanta Says No to Violence Against Women banner somewhere, ranging from local office buildings to the Jefferson Street Bridge, which was pretty prominent. And we're going to be creating a series of posts on social media to build awareness um, this year, we're working on a hints and tips series where we talk about personal safety for women and girls. And we're also planning a march in downtown Joliet on Tuesday, November 22nd, to raise awareness of domestic violence. For information on our activities for the 16 Days Project, check out our website at www.jolietzanta.org. And check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you to our guest, Amira Abu Youssef, and our co-hosts, Bonnie and Lisa. Thank you to the University of St. Francis for helping make these podcasts a reality. Next time, our host will be Lisa Pappas, and she'll be talking about an amazing initiative by another area club that has the potential to be implemented everywhere. That sounds really intriguing. But you have to tune in to find out. So thank you very much, everyone. Um, if, are there any last questions or comments? Amir, thank you so much. Oh, you have just so really been awesome. I think you covered all areas of the spectrum. And, I, and like you said, there may be victims out there. They now know what to do, where to go to get help. And my that's pleasure. great. Thank you again. You're so welcome. Amir, my question for you is what you do is fantastic and wonderful, and but there's a really dark element to it. How do you combat that on a personal level? What, <laughs> I, what are some strategies that, that you can give to people? Because the, I would find it difficult <laughs> um, to, to let go and to move I on. show up to Pat's Yoga Studio once a week. <laughs> um, that was actually really changed me a lot. So... I, you know, I basically, I started this career right out of my master's degree and I've learned a lot when it comes to my tolerance and setting boundaries and things like that. I've made some missteps over the years and, uh, but really taking time to do yoga. And as much as I, I mean, I hated meditation at first, <laughs> I wanted to literally rip the fabric off any chair I was sitting on. I couldn't do it, but it took practice, but it, it, I noticed, and it, it wasn't like a conscious, like overt thing I noticed, but after a while, like I was just more patient. Things didn't rattle me as much or I, but also kind of took time where I've gone through many, 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 many crises um, just at work of different things and just knowing that they always end. Okay. And, you know, nothing goes on forever was very helpful. And, you know, I had a, I mentored a lot of new people over the years and, and to teach them because they would get all like keyed up over things and they're like, sure. you're so dismissive. And I'm like, I'm not dismissive. I just, I, I don't have the energy to get worked up over something that's eventually going to pass. So, Part of it just took time. Okay. Part of it was some yoga, to be honest. I have a super supportive partner. I He just, God, he's the best. Just <laughs> just supported me throughout all the years and just kind of let me do what I needed to do. And just, mm -hmm. you know, he's just great. So that's also helpful. I've got friends who also do similar work. So maybe they're music therapists or, you know, I have other therapist friends. My degree was in marriage and family therapy. So having other sounding boards and... Is just good self-care. I mean, I wish I could still take a bubble bath, but I decided <laughs> to have a kid instead. So I haven't seen that bathtub <laughs> in ages. So one day I'll get back to that kind of stuff. But it is, those are the, the yeah. big things that have helped me. That's great because self-care really is important. And mm -hmm. I can't imagine how difficult it might be to take on some other people's you know, problems and how mm -hmm. you can, what you've had to do to teach yourself to not mm -hmm. do that. So it's wonderful. I've had good mentors. I mean, I sure. definitely want to credit, you know, my, you know, former CEO and, and chief operating officers and 
I've sought out, you know, professional supervision during my time. And you always learn something from people who've been through it. So getting supervision and having good mentors has also been very helpful. Yeah, I like the idea of you putting yourself first to take care of you. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. uh, You you can't help other people. You can be better for other people. Yeah, Yeah. because I mean, I've seen it when people get very burnt out and Mm -hmm. they're not their best. They're not helping anybody. Right. Like they just become that warm body that's there. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Clients aren't satisfied. That person is not satisfied. It is this is not a good scenario. So it's really important to check in with yourself, know how you're feeling, take a break if you need to take a break, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that might look like, but always be in tune with yourself. And um, yoga and meditation <laughs> legit does help you be in tune with yourself. That's, That's great. great. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Amira. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, thank you again for being part of our um, audience today. We certainly appreciate you and we want to wish everyone a good evening and we'll see you next time. Zanta on the Move is hosted and produced by Bonnie Winfrey, Pat Perrier, and Lisa Pappas. It is engineered and edited by Alex Melkars. Zanta on the Move is recorded in the WCSF studio on the campus of the University of St. Francis in Joliet, Illinois. The views reflected in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of St. Francis, WCSF, University Administration, or the Catholic Diocese of Joliet.